This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a special episode of Danger Close because it is the audiobook edition, the new foreword, the preface, the prologue, first few chapters of The Terminalist, read by Ray Porter, except for the new foreword, which is read by me. And it's a lot harder to read uh, and narrate something than I thought. So uh, my hat is off to Ray Porter, who does such an amazing job with these audiobooks. So uh, in this case, I wrote a new forward for the hardcover media tie-in edition right here. This is a limited edition hardcover with Chris Pratt and has the new forward where I talk about how the book came to be, how the series came to be, how Chris Pratt came to portray James Reese on screen, how Antoine Fuqua got attached to the project. That is all in here in the new forward and in the forward that I read in this podcast. There's also a paperback edition with Chris Pratt on the cover and a trade paperback edition. That's a little bigger than the actual paperback over here. But uh, these ones do not have the photos and do not have the new forward. That only comes in this uh, limited collector's edition right here. But you can listen to it. So keep listening and uh, you can hear me read the foreword and listen to a few more chapters of The Terminalist. Those ones read by the incredibly talented Ray Porter. Amazing guy. Also, today is the day that The Terminalist drops on Amazon Prime Video. So that is out now. It's been out for a few hours now. You can check that out this 4th of July weekend. Chris Pratt starring, Antoine Fuqua directing, and I just could not be more thrilled with how that came out. So uh, check that out on Amazon Prime Video. And there's a new podcast that I'm dropping here next week, and it's called the Terminal List Podcast. And it'll be eight episodes. I think eight episodes, maybe a couple more, but at least eight to coincide with the eight episodes of the Amazon Prime Video series. So it is me, it is David DeGilio, who is the showrunner. And a showrunner is like what a director is for a feature film, a showrunner is for a series. So like the central point of contact for everything that is going on with the series. Awesome guy. And my dear friend from the SEAL teams, Jared Shaw. And without Jared, this would not be happening. He gave a copy of The Terminalist to Chris Pratt before the book even hit shelves. And that's when Chris read it and decided that he wanted to option it and turn it in to what you see today. So thank you, Jared. Thank you, David. And uh, Jared is also uh, a producer on the show, a technical advisor on the show, and stars as Boozer on the show. So you can check him out in front of the camera, but also know that he was behind it as well, uh, along with David DeGilio. And without those two, and Max Adams, former Army Ranger, who is involved, along with Ray Mendoza of War Office Production, former uh, SEAL buddy of mine, uh, without all those guys involved, this would be a very different show. And then without the trust of Amazon, without the trust of Antoine, without the trust of Chris, very different show. So cannot be more thrilled with how that turned out. So check that out on Amazon Prime Video right now. And be sure to subscribe to the Terminal List podcast. We talk about behind the scenes stories and insights from the set. And we also learn a bunch of new things that we didn't know before we sat down and started talking. So that was a really cool part of sitting down to do this podcast with those guys. So check it out. Terminal List podcast coming in hot next week. So now sit back, relax, and enjoy the new forward, the preface, the prologue, and first few chapters of The Terminal List. 
forward. Luck is the residue of preparation. The story behind the Amazon Prime video series adaptation of The Terminal List. How did you do this? That's a question I get quite often, and one I'm getting more and more as new readers and listeners discover The Terminal List and become part of my protagonist's journey, and in a sense, a part of my journey as well. How did your debut novel, The Terminal List, become an Amazon Prime video series starring Chris Pratt, directed by Antoine Fuqua? If you are interested in that story, keep listening. The story of the novel you're listening to goes back to my earliest days with parents who made reading a natural part of my life. My mother was, and is to this day, a librarian. So I grew up surrounded by books and developed a love for reading. My paternal grandfather was a Marine Corsair pilot killed in the Pacific in World War II. I grew up with photos of him and his squadron, his medals, his wings, and his issued escape and evasion maps. My dad and I watched Black Sheep Squadron on television, which was our connection to him and the greatest generation through the medium of popular culture. I was determined to one day serve my country in uniform. Around that same time, I found out about Navy SEALs. There was not much written back in the early 80s about the SEAL teams. You had to dig and put in the effort in the days before the internet. For me, that meant trips to the library with my mom, learning how to research. It was there in the stacks that I began my study of warfare, specifically special operations, irregular warfare, and terrorism. The 1970s and 1980s were a proving ground for international terrorism on the world stage. With the 1970 Dawson Field hijackings, the 1972 Olympics Munich Massacre, the 1976 Raid on Entebbe, Desert One and Princess Gate in 1980, the 1983 U.S. Embassy bombing in Beirut followed months later by the bombing of the Marine Barracks and the subsequent U.S. Embassy bombing in Kuwait, William Buckley's 1984 abduction in Beirut, TWA Flight 847, the Achille Laurel hijacking, the Italy airport attacks in 1985, and Pan Am 103 in 1988, among others. All these events during a formative time in my youth as I read and digested every book, magazine article, or newspaper clipping connected to terrorism, warfare, counterterrorism, insurgencies, and counterinsurgencies, and special operations, established a foundation that I continue to build upon today. It was during this phase of my life that I began to read the novels on my parents' shelves. Authors in the mid-80s writing in the thriller genre often created protagonists with backgrounds in Vietnam as Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces soldiers, Marine snipers, or CIA paramilitary officers. As someone who aspired to one day join those elite ranks, I naturally gravitated to books by Tom Clancy, David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, J.C. Pollock, Frederick Forsyth, Ken Follett, Robert Ludlum, John Le Carre, Louis L'Amour, Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter, and A.J. Quinnell. I was also introduced to Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. There was magic in the pages of those books, magic I wanted to create for readers in the future. My calling was clear, my path was set. After my time in the military, I would write thrillers. Fast forward to my last years in the SEAL teams. I had returned from my final Iraq deployment as a task unit commander in Basra. As lieutenant commander, it would be the last time I'd be connected to the troops at the tactical level. It had been a solid run, working my way from an enlisted SEAL sniper to troop commander while the country was at war, with deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, the Southern Philippines, and a few other hotspots around the globe. It was time for a new chapter and there was no doubt in my mind as to what I was going to do next. It was time to write. Perhaps not so coincidentally, readers first encounter my protagonist, 
Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander and Sniper James Reese on his final deployment as a troop commander. As I prepared to exit the military, I was assigned to BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, the Naval Special Warfare Command where candidates test themselves in the three phases of selection, which includes the infamous Hell Week. It came to my attention that a solid operator named Jared Shaw, who was working as a first phase instructor, had decided to get out of the military. I ran into him on the grinder, an asphalt area in the middle of the compound where PT, or physical training, had been a SEAL proving ground for decades. I asked him to drop by my office when he had a moment. Soon we were discussing his future plans. I offered my assistance and ended up introducing him to a couple people in the private sector who worked in a field he was interested in exploring. Then I forgot all about that conversation. Years later, it would prove to be life-changing. I started work on the terminal list as I dropped my papers to exit the Navy and started checking off all the boxes one needs to check in order to get out of the giant bureaucracy that is the military. Medical, dental, gear turn-in, secret program readouts, and mandatory transition classes that drove me to the brink of insanity. I wanted to write, so between these classes and appointments, that is exactly what I did. I began by typing out close to 10 one-page executive summaries as plot ideas for my debut thriller. I printed them and spread them out on a table. It was immediately clear to me that The Terminalist, a story of revenge without constraint, would introduce the world to James Reese. As a child of the 80s, for me it was only natural that I thought of an actor to portray my main character. I had no connections in Hollywood or publishing circles, yet it never even occurred to me that I would not write number one New York Times bestselling novels or that the exact actor I wanted to bring my character and stories to life would not option the book for the screen. As I started my writing journey, I was vaguely aware of an actor named Chris Pratt in an NBC sitcom called Parks and Recreation, who recently had a supporting role as a Navy SEAL in Zero Dark Thirty, a movie about the hunt to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. Some of my closest friends were on the helicopters that flew into Pakistan in May of 2011, a mission they believed was one way. I immediately felt a connection to Chris because of that role. I also noted his physical transformation from the lovable Andy Dwyer to a skilled SEAL team operator. The Catherine Bigelow film predated his rise to international stardom in Guardians of the Galaxy, Jurassic World, and Avengers. As I typed away on the terminal list in the small office of our Coronado, California home, I saw Chris Pratt as an actor with incredible potential. I had no idea what was on the horizon for him as he began his rise to A-list prominence, but I knew he would bring James Reese to life. He was likable on and off screen, and he appeared to be a genuinely kind person. This would be important because I would need an audience to connect with and like, perhaps even forgive, James Reese. What I was creating on the page was exceptionally brutal. Having decided on the actor to play Reese, for me it only made sense to pick the exact director I wanted to direct, what Justin Charters would later call an incredibly vivid, emotional, action-packed tapestry of carnage and death. There was never even a question. Antoine Fuqua. I first became aware of Antoine through The Replacement Killers, which hit screens soon after I checked into my first SEAL team. He later directed Training Day, the film for which Denzel Washington won the Academy Award for Best Actor. I was deployed when it debuted in October of 2001 and would see it upon my return to the United States. It remains a powerhouse of a film to this day. In 2003, Tears of the Sun introduced Antoine to Navy SEALs, and the experience with them on set would directly impact my life more than a decade later. I was just finishing officer candidate school when it premiered, and I rushed to the theater to see it. Antoine would go on to direct Shooter, Olympus Has Fallen, and The Equalizer, 
which hit theaters as I was writing The Terminal List. Only later would I learn that Antoine is much more than a director. He's a creator and visionary, and paying him the highest compliment I possibly can, he's a genuinely good person. It is an honor to call him a friend. As I continued to work on my debut novel from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. at the desk off our bedroom, the only time it was quiet in a home with my wife, three children, and our dog, I had decided that Chris Pratt would portray James Reese and Antoine Fuqua would direct. Never once did it occur to me that this would not happen. I had heard that getting a novel published was impossible and that making the vaunted New York Times list at all, let alone at the number one position, was reserved for authors with last names like King, Clancy, Grisham, Silva, Child, and Patterson. I was told that getting a film project off the ground was reserved for the smallest percentage of authors and that the odds of all this happening were almost zero. Good. I have never paid much attention to the odds. I had heard the same things said about making it through Buds, which typically has an 80% attrition rate. The amount of time I dedicated to worrying about not making it through Buds can be reduced to this one sentence. I'll be in the 20% that make it. The challenge was part of the allure. As I wrote the terminal list, I had no social media presence or website. I was not worried about finding an agent. I had no idea I needed one. And I was not worried about signing a contract with a publisher. All that mattered was the story. When I was a few months into writing, I looked at the acknowledgments sections of the top-selling thriller novels on my shelves and noted that both Vince Flynn and Brad Thor thanked a woman named Emily Bessler, who had her own imprint at Simon & Schuster under Atria Books, called Emily Bessler Books. It was settled. Emily Bessler would be my editor and publisher. I had it all figured out. Emily Bessler would publish my novel and sign me for multiple future thrillers. Chris Pratt would star in the film adaptation, and Antoine Fuqua would direct. None of them knew this yet. They didn't even know I existed, but that was of no concern to me. As I continued to write and then refine the narrative, all my effort went into the terminal list. I was not worried about agents, publishers, websites, social media accounts, book sales, or movie rights. I knew all that would come, but only if I wrote the best thriller I possibly could. As Jocko Willink taught me years earlier, prioritize and execute. The terminal list was the priority. As I continued to write, my friend and Coronado real estate mogul Scott Grimes told a Naval Academy classmate of his that I was writing a novel. This particular classmate and I had crossed paths in the SEAL teams. Johnny Sanchez was out of the Navy and working in finance. He knew me mostly by reputation, which is one's currency in the world of special operations. He called immediately and offered to put me in touch with an author named Brad Thor, whom he had met at a fundraiser and assisted with SEAL-specific information in his novels. Brad was kind enough to schedule a call. That call would change my life and result in cracking open the door to an office in the Simon & Schuster building in New York. That office belonged to Emily Bessler. A year and a half after that call, I mailed a printed copy of the terminal list to New York, where Emily would open it and read the opening lines. I met her a few weeks later over coffee in Manhattan. She wanted to publish it. But first I needed an agent. Emily then introduced me to Alexandra Machinist, who rounded out the team. Not long after that, in early 2017, I signed my first two-book publishing contract. I was well into my second novel, True Believer, by this point, having traveled to Mozambique for research, even before I'd mailed Emily the manuscript for the terminal list. I'd already thought of myself as an author and even wrote author on the occupation line of the Mozambique Customs Entry Form. Thinking of myself as a professional writer, even though I was not yet published, was something I took from Stephen Pressfield's Turning Pro. I had been in the profession of arms for 20 years. Now, 
I was a professional writer. We decided on a March 2018 publication date for the terminal list. Galleys, or advanced readers' editions of the book, which typically go to reviewers in advance of publication, and to other authors for blurbs, came out in early fall of 2017. I was at Thunder Ranch Shooting School, training with Clinton Heidi Smith in November of that year, when I got a call from my friend, David Bowles, an attorney who had been a general counsel for a company in the outdoor industry. He knew that I had a book coming out and somehow made the connection to a mutual old friend, Jared Shaw. He reconnected us, and Jared called while I was on the range. I had not talked to him since our days at Bud's five years prior. He first asked if I remembered him, which I did. Then he asked if I remembered our conversation, which I did not. He went on to tell me that he had always wanted to thank me for sitting down with him as he was getting out of the teams, talking through that transition, and for introducing him to people in the private sector. He said that no one else had taken the time to do that, and it had meant a lot to him. I told him that it was my pleasure, and that I always wanted to help good people, whether they were staying in or getting out. He then said he had heard that I was writing a book. I let him know it was finished and would hit shelves in March, but that if he was interested, I could send him a galley copy, something I had discovered existed only a couple weeks earlier. He said he wanted to read it, but that he would like to give a copy to a friend, if that were possible. I said no problem and asked his friend's name. I'll never forget where I was standing when he responded, Chris Pratt. I would later find out that Chris and Joel Edgerton had come down to Bud's while Jared was an instructor to do some research into their SEAL characters for Zero Dark Thirty. They ran the obstacle course and observed training. Jared was part of the cadre that escorted them around the compound that day. Jared was wearing a hat. I'll leave out what was on it, but the significance of that hat was that Chris asked about it, which sparked a conversation that turned into a lasting friendship. Jared received the galley copies of the terminal list and gave one to Chris, who read it at the end of December, 2017. A week later, he called wanting to option the film rights. At the same time, a dear friend of mine, Mark Owen, who was on the Bin Laden raid and who had written a book titled No Easy Day, gave a copy of the terminal list to Antoine Fuqua. They had met at a speaking event and Mark had assisted Antoine with Equalizer 2. Antoine and Chris had worked together in The Magnificent Seven and he knew that Chris was interested in the project. So they connected to discuss joining forces. In March of 2021, we started filming The Terminal List with Chris Pratt starring, Antoine Fuqua directing, and with all three of us as executive producers. In December of 2019, Chris connected me with the showrunner and executive producer, David DiGilio, and we began work on the pilot episode with David writing and with me advising and learning. Rarely has a day passed since that David and I have not talked and plotted in the development of the series. The terminal list could not be in better hands. Former Army Ranger Max Adams was recruited early on as a writer, producer, and second unit director. He brought a wealth of knowledge and experience to the writer's room and to the set. As we got closer to a scheduled filming date, my friend and former Navy SEAL Ray Mendoza joined the team as the technical advisor. He starred in Active Valor and advised on Peter Berg's Lone Survivor, the film adaptation of Marcus Luttrell's book of the same name which told the story of Operation Red Wings in Afghanistan. Ray formed War Office Productions after leaving the military and advises on military-themed films. He was on set every single day, making sure we got it right. Additional cast members were announced in the lead-up to filming. Taylor Kitsch, Constance Wu, Gene Triplehorn, Riley Keough, Tyna Rushing, Arlo Mertz, Nick Chinland, Patrick Schwarzenegger, LaMonica Garrett, J.D. Pardo, Jai Courtney, Christina Vidal, Alexis Lauder, Tom Amandez, Catherine Dyer, 
Matthew Rauch, Michael Broderick, Remy Adelecki, and Nate Boyer. My experiences with each and every one of these actors has made me a better person. I am humbled beyond words that they took the time to lend their talents to the terminal list. The legendary George Sack came on board as the mobility specialist and sourced the awesome 1988 FJ-62 Land Cruiser you will see in the show. Former Navy SEAL Keith Willard joined the team as the stunt coordinator. Armorer, former Marine, and fellow Land Cruiser enthusiast Mike Panovics ensured that the weapons on set were configured correctly for each scene. He was a busy man. Third-generation prop master Gary Tours of Extreme Props went above and beyond to acquire the weapons you see in the series to include a very special Eccles Legend 300 Wind Mag. On the rare days off during filming, we would link up with Taryn Butler of Terran Tactical Innovations in Simi Valley to shoot the course. You can catch a few of those runs on my Instagram, at Jack Carr USA. My first day on the set was like a SEAL reunion, as it was a SEAL-centric action sequence that took an entire week to film. Jared Shaw, Raymond Doza, Garrett Golden, AJ James, Ryan Sangster, Kenny Sheard, Justin Garza, and Chris Alvarez are all former SEALs portraying SEALs in the series. Former Marine Aaron Schwitzer and his dog Rex completed the platoon in episode one. My two main takeaways from the set were how good everyone was at their specific jobs and how hard every single person was working. My first impression was that it resembled a military organization, specifically a SEAL team. Antoine's director was the commanding officer, setting the tone strategically for the entire production. Chris was the troop commander, which also happened to be his character's position in the series, inspiring the cast and crew with his energy, work ethic, dedication, enthusiasm, and humor. Just like in the SEAL teams, there was an armorer, an explosives expert, and a mobility specialist. I felt right at home. In subsequent episodes, my Bud's Hell Week classmate Mike Sowers joined the team, as did former SEAL and stuntman Duffy Gaver. Approximately 350 people were on set, bringing their A-game each and every day. To say nothing of those behind the scenes, working on editing, visual effects, and administration. From episodic directors Ellen Curis, MJ Bassett, Frederick E. Otoy, Tucker Gates, and Sylvan White, to executive producers John Schumacher, Daniel Shattuck, and David Aug, to Chris's stunt double, Chris Romrell, to my friend, producer, and problem-solver extraordinaire, Kat Samick. I am so grateful for everyone's efforts in bringing the Terminal List to life. And what of Jared Shaw, the man who made all this possible? I'm glad you asked. You will not find him on social channels, but you will find him crushing it in front of the camera as Boozer in the series, friend and teammate of James Reese. Behind the camera, he was on set every day as a producer. Without that daily commitment, The Terminalist would be a very different show. One might listen to this forward and conclude that I got lucky. If that's true, I'll take it. A heavy dose of luck certainly doesn't hurt. It also helped that I knew what I wanted to do from my earliest days and set about preparing to be the best operator and leader possible, while at the same time reading thrillers by the masters who became my early professors in the art of storytelling. Had I a different reputation in the teams, perhaps Johnny Sanchez would not have risked his political capital with Brad Thor and not made that introduction. Had I not had a background as a reader and student of the genre, perhaps Brad would not have felt comfortable asking Emily Bessler to take a look at the terminal list. Had I not stood by Mark Owen as the military and legal might of the United States government descended upon him in the wake of No Easy Day, watch or listen to my Danger Close podcast four-part series, 
head of the snake for details, perhaps he would not have passed my manuscript to Antoine Fuqua. And had I not taken the time to sit down with Jared Shaw in my office off the grinder in the Bud's compound all those years ago, perhaps Chris Pratt would never have picked up the Winkler tomahawk and started stacking bodies as James Reese. Had none of that happened, the terminal list would still exist, but only as a stack of papers on my bedside table. As a former commanding officer told me in the lead-up to deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, luck is the residue of preparation. Indeed it is. Enjoy the journey. Jack Carr, February 12th, 2022, Park City, Utah. For the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines who didn't make it back, and for our children who are not yet old enough to read this, there's a man going round taking names. Author unknown. Preface. This is a novel of revenge. The terminal list explores what could happen when an apex predator, a warrior at the top of his game, is thrown into a situation from which there is no return. It is about what could happen when societal norms, laws, regulations, morals, and ethics give way for a man of extraordinary capability, hardened by war, and set on a course of reckoning. A man who is, for all practical purposes, already dead. Due to the sensitive nature of the security clearances I held while in the military as a Navy SEAL, I am required to submit any written material intended for public release, including works of fiction, to the Department of Defense. In order to fulfill that obligation lawfully, this manuscript was submitted to the DOD Office of Pre-Publication and security review, and was cleared as amended by that office. Throughout the writing process, I took great pains to ensure no tactics, techniques, or procedures were compromised. The last thing I want to do is give the enemy something that could possibly give them an advantage on the battlefield. The government review process exists for a reason, and having had the honor of defending this great nation at war, I am still bound by my former clearances to have my writing reviewed. The government's redactions are included as amended and are blacked out in the novel. While this is a work of fiction, each scene draws from emotions that I experienced during real-world events over 20 years in the military. Those emotions, coupled with time in combat, add an authenticity to the novel that I hope makes for a thrilling reading experience. Though my time as a SEAL certainly influenced my choice of a protagonist, I am not James Reese. He is more skilled, witty, and intelligent than I could ever hope to be. Though I am not James Reese, I understand him. He has the experience, training, skill, and drive to administer justice on his terms. This is also a book about control. The consolidation of power at the federal level in the guise of public safety is a national trend and should be guarded against at all costs. This erosion of rights, however incremental, is the slow death of freedom. We've reached a point where the power of the federal government is such that they can essentially target anyone of their choosing. Recent allegations that government agencies may have targeted political opponents should alarm all Americans regardless of party affiliation 
revisionist views of the Constitution by opportunistic politicians and unelected judges with agendas that reinterpret the Bill of Rights to take power away from the people and consolidate it at the federal level threaten the core principles of the Republic. As a free people, keeping federal power in check is something that should be of concern to us all. The fundamental value of freedom is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. We are citizens, not subjects, and we must stay ever vigilant that we remain so. Jack Carr, August 6, 2017, Park City, Utah Prologue It didn't take a tactical genius to pick the spot. Humans are creatures of habit, and some were more religious about it than others. Accountants, it seemed, were practically monastic in their routines. From June 1st to November 1st of every year, Marcus Boykin lived in his mountain house in Star Valley Ranch, Wyoming. Star Valley sounded far more appealing to the East and West Coast real estate buyers than its previous name of Starvation Valley. It was an enclave of wealthy outsiders in otherwise rural western Wyoming, stuck into the mountainside like a well-manicured finger of civilization, full of multi-million dollar homes in a part of the world otherwise populated by ranchers and cowboys. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Boykin rose early and climbed into his silver Mercedes G550 SUV to drive the 50 miles to the relative metropolis of Jackson. With a summertime population of bankers and hedge fund managers that would rival the Hamptons, it was the only place within hours where he could eat a gourmet meal with an $800 bottle of wine. In Jackson, he could sip lattes and read the Wall Street Journal in the company of fellow seasonal residents from New York, Greenwich, Boston, and Los Angeles. Three days a week, he could connect with real people in person, instead of waiting impatiently for his friends to comment on his Facebook posts. Dinners at Rendezvous Bistro were far tastier, and the conversation more stimulating than his usual meal alone on the deck, no matter how spectacular the view. U.S. 89 runs north and south through the steep valley that straddles the line between Wyoming and Idaho. Irrigated hayfields near the roadway lie in the shadows of the rugged 10,000-foot peaks to the east and more gentle hills to the west. Just north of the tiny town of Alpine, the route to Jackson turns east along the Snake River and winds into the mountains of the Bridger-Teton National Forest. At this point in the journey, the jagged ridge lines of the Tetons run nearly to the roadside, like towering cruise ships moored alongside an asphalt pier. Ten feet from the well-maintained road was terrain as rugged as nearly anywhere in the lower 48, the home of trophy mule deer and giant elk, as well as plenty of black bears and the occasional moose. Having never touched a gun or hunted in his life, it would never occur to Boykin that September 15th, the opening day of deer season in Wyoming's Region G, fell on a Monday that year. James Reese had hiked in the previous afternoon from a trailhead on the opposite side of the mountain from the U.S. Highway. The trail began near the road as the crow flies, but it was many miles away by vehicle. The vistas of the highway were as close to the remote backcountry as most seasonal residents like Boykin ventured. 
Though it was only a few hours' hike from his truck, Reese may as well have walked in from a different world. He wore a light pack with a nylon rifle scabbard strapped to the side, high-performance digital camo hunting clothing from Sitka, and the Salomon hiking boots he had worn on countless operations around the world. Walking through the Wyoming backcountry in the traditional sniper's woolly ghillie suit and heavyweight rifle, he would stick out like a man wandering the mountains in a tuxedo. But clad in the garb of a hunter, he was as invisible as a guy in a blue blazer at the airport. The anonymous tip that he'd called in about the moose poachers just south of Jackson would probably occupy every game department cop in the region. But in the unlikely event that he ran into someone of authority, the hunting license and deer tag in his pocket would verify him as just another hunter out looking for muleys on the busiest day of the year. He could have hiked in at night with a headlamp or brought along his night vision, but he wanted to get into his spot before dark. No sense twisting an ankle, or worse, in this rough country, and he was anxious to get started. He had studied the topography on maps and satellite imagery hundreds of times, but he'd still hiked the route two days earlier to ensure that it looked the same on the ground as it did from the air. The country was steep and high. It didn't matter how well you were conditioned at sea level. 8,000 feet was still 8,000 feet. He stopped to catch his breath and guzzle water from the hose clipped to his shoulder strap. His legs burned and his lungs were starved for oxygen. His base layer was covered in sweat despite temperatures in the 50s, so he zipped his top down to let some of his body heat escape. He wasn't in a rush, but he moved with purpose. It certainly wasn't the first time he had pushed himself up a mountain to a target. His perch was just as he'd left it, a small, U-shaped slot eroded into the mountainside that could only be accessed from the front. There was very little chance of a hunter or game warden wandering up on his six while he was in position, and he'd have a clear view of anyone approaching from the front long before they reached his hide site. The spot overlooked a saddle of highway that ran between two steep hills. His position was near the top of the second hill if you were driving toward Jackson. Like a cave without a roof, the spot would protect him from the prying eyes of hunters glassing for deer the afternoon before the season opened, and would keep him out of the wind as the temperature dropped into the low thirties overnight. He pulled his rifle out of the scabbard and laid his pack down just short of the mouth of the slot, so his muzzle would not be visible from below. The rifle was an Eccles legend, built by a master in Utah, whose handmade rifles sold for several months of his Navy salary. It was a gift from his father after his first post-9-11 deployment and was one of his most prized possessions. He had planned to hunt more after he retired and entered the private sector. The rifle was chambered in 300 Winchester Magnum, and despite weighing far less than the sniper rifles he'd used overseas, was even more accurate. Instead of a traditional hunting scope, he had installed a Nightforce NXS 2.5 to 10 by 32 millimeter, the same glass he used at work. The pack supported the rifle's forend, and a small beanbag steadied the butt. Lying prone with the front and back of the rifle supported, he was able to hold the rifle as steady as any bench rest. As cars and trucks crested the hill to his west, he would dry fire at the driver's position of the windshield to get the timing right. 
The vacationers and local residents traveling this mountain road in the fall afternoon had no idea that they were in the crosshairs of one of the nation's deadliest warriors. Satisfied that his position was solid and that he'd have the right angle on the target, he retreated to the back of his mountain cubby and fired up his backpacking stove to heat water for his freeze-dried dinner. When the sun dropped below the skyline and the temperature fell by double digits, he crawled into his sleeping bag. He thought about his little girl, all blonde curls, tears welling up in her brave blue eyes as she saw Daddy off on his last deployment. Six months away, and he would be home for good. Promise. He could still see her face pressed up against the airport glass for one last look as he boarded the plane. The hardest parts of a deployment were the first couple of weeks, when you'd just left home, and the last couple when you started anticipating your return. That it was his last trip overseas made the light at the end of the tunnel brighter. Finally, the end of the train-deploy-train treadmill he and his SEAL brothers had been on for well over a decade. Curled up in his sleeping bag underneath a light show of stars that a city dweller couldn't comprehend, he slept sounder than he had in weeks. No waking up to realize that the nightmare was real. No reaching across the bed for a wife who wasn't there. No hearing the soft cries of a daughter who would never again crawl into his bed for protection from the boogeyman. He was already awake, staring at Orion, when his watch chirped at 0500. A swig from his water bottle and an energy bar would be his breakfast. He got into position behind his rifle and waited patiently for the sun to rise. Marcus Boykin was an early riser, as was nearly everyone in the financial sector. You were either up and at the table in his line of work, or you were asleep and on the menu. He looked at the weather forecast on his iPhone before slipping on a pair of designer jeans and some tan Italian loafers. He wore a Patagonia fleece over his pink Lacoste polo and put on a Yankees cap to hide his bald spot from the twenty-something waitress he was currently trying to bed. To him, she wasn't Sarah with the degree in environmental engineering working to save up for her master's. She was the waitress. He'd been unsuccessful in getting into her pants so far, but she was broke and he was rich. One night, sooner or later, she'd get drunk and slip up and he'd be there to take advantage. Living this far out was part of the challenge, though he knew that to better his chances, he might have to get a condo in town at some point to help seal the deal. He grabbed his keys from the marble kitchen counter and pressed the remote start. It was freezing, and Boykin wanted the SUV nice and toasty with the heater running and the seats warmed by the time he made his to-go coffee and headed out. He opened his giant oak front door and took out his phone to tweet a photo of the orange glow of sunrise making its way over the mountain before he lost Wi-Fi coverage. The cell service was crap until you got to Jackson. He didn't really care about the view. In his mind, the sun would do the same thing tomorrow but it would make his friends on both coasts jealous, a thought that he relished. As he climbed into the SUV and headed down the mountain road to US-89, his mind turned to thoughts of what he'd say to the waitress when he saw her. Combat is sensory overload, total chaos, especially if you're in command. The noise is deafening, both from the incoming and outgoing fire. 
while the overpressure of muzzle blasts and explosions rock your body down to its DNA. Men are yelling, not out of fear or panic, but to communicate above the roar. Tracers come in, rockets fly past. Dust from explosions and bullet strikes shroud your immediate world in a tactile cloud of dust. Radio traffic in your ears adds to the storm and demands a conscious response, which means one's actions in the moment must be subconscious. Identifying targets, firing weapons, changing magazines, all must happen automatically, as seamless as steering, shifting gears, and working the gas pedal of a car while talking on a cell phone. As a leader, you must rise even further above the storm and look beyond your own survival. You must direct the fire and movement of the entire element and resist the instinct to become just another gun in the fight. The whole thing is one tacky, psyche blur of constant decision-making. This was the opposite of chaos. Reese's senses registered nothing unnatural, just the calm of aspens in the breeze and the relaxing melody of wildlife easing into another day to a beautiful mountain sunrise. There was no radio, no one to communicate with, just the occasional hum of a car or pickup on the asphalt of the highway. The range to the dip in the road was exactly 625 yards which meant that the bullet would drop 77 inches in its path from his barrel to the target. The rifle's scope was zeroed for 100 yards, so he would have to compensate for the difference. He came up 34 clicks, 3.4 mils, to make up for the drop. By dialing for the range, there would be no holdover. He could put the center of the reticle right on the target. Fight with every advantage you can get. The winds were light this early in the morning, which was a good thing. Wind calls were always tricky in the mountains, even for a pro. The Kestrel told him it was blowing two miles per hour from his left, a full-value wind that required six inches of hold. Since winds could shift at any moment, he used the mill dot reticle to hold off for the 0.3 mils. He heard the hum of the tires even before the blue halogen headlights haloed above the highway, as the SUV climbed the rise. The silver Mercedes was unmistakably Boykins. Thank God this guy didn't drive an F-150. The vehicle was coming straight at him, which meant no lead was required, but it was still hauling ass. He didn't have much time to admire the success of his planning. He tracked the target as it came down the hill, just as he'd done with the two other vehicles that had passed earlier that morning. He took a full breath, briefly rested at its peak, then exhaled to find his natural respiratory pause when his lungs had expended their air, steadying and focusing him for the task at hand. Doing so caused the movement of the scope's reticle to slow from an orbit to a small tremor. Even with a solid rest, it was never as steady as in the movies. The Mercedes hit the flat spot and appeared to stop for a second as he lost the perspective of its forward progress. He couldn't see the driver not at this range and certainly not in this light. Holding just right of the windshield's center, he slowly pressed the trigger. His ears heard the shot, but his brain barely registered the sound. The only sensation of recoil was the scope's image jolting into a blur as the rifle rocked skyward. Despite putting rounds into countless men in shitty corners of the world, his body still jolted into fight-or-flight mode, adrenaline surging into his body like a shot of heroin. He had killed plenty of men with his country's blessing in the past. 
but this time pressing the trigger meant breaking the most sacred bond of society. He'd just committed murder. The monolithic bullet was a Barnes triple shock made from solid copper and scored inside the tiny hollow point to split into four petals upon impact, like a deadly flower. It was engineered to penetrate deeply on big-game animals and worked so well that Special Operations troops adopted it for use during the global war on terror. When it hit the nearly vertical glass windshield of the Mercedes, the petals sheared off, leaving a cylinder of copper a third of an inch in diameter and still moving faster than most handgun rounds do at the muzzle. It struck Boykin on the bridge of his nose and angled downward slightly as it smashed cartilage, brain, and bone into jelly. It severed the first vertebra and exited the back of his neck, looking much like it did on the way in, before punching through the leather headrest and terminating its flight in the foam cushioning of the back seat. The Mercedes's cruise control was set on 60 miles per hour when its driver's brain ceased sending command signals to his body. His limbs quivered and jerked the way most animals and humans do when shot in the central nervous system, but the Teutonic engineering of the SUV kept the wheels traveling straight up the rise of the highway as if nothing had happened. When it roared past Reese's position, he thought for a second that he'd missed. As the vehicle crested the rise, having accelerated to make up for the steep grade, Boykin's lifeless body shifted forward in his restraint and caused the wheel to turn sharply to the left. The forward momentum, downward slope, and the SUV's high center of gravity created a snowball effect and caused the Mercedes to roll forward on its right front wheel, cartwheeling off the pavement and into the steep shoulder. The sound of rubber and steel meeting asphalt and rock were deafeningly loud, but only one man could hear it. Reese smiled for the first time in many months as he pulled a Ziploc bag from a pocket inside his jacket. Out of the bag came a folded-up crayon drawing with a list of names written on the back. With a tiny stub of a pencil, he crossed the first name off the list and returned it to its home against his chest. Part 1. The Ambush Chapter 1. Three months earlier, Kost Province, Afghanistan, 0200 local time. Not one of the guys on the ground had liked this mission. Now, moving to within a click of their target, they had pushed that distraction from their minds and were solely focused on the deadly challenge before them. Glancing at the GPS attached to the stock of his rifle and scanning the terrain ahead, Lieutenant Commander James Reese called a quick perimeter. Snipers were already moving up to the high ground as team leaders joined Reese for a last quick update before the final push to the objective. Even with all the technology at their disposal, things could go wrong in a heartbeat. Their enemy was cunning and highly adaptive. After 16 years at war, the Afghans saying, the Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time, rang a bit more true than it had in the early days. What do you think, Reese? asked a huge beast of a man, looking like a creature from another world with his AOR-1 patterned camouflage, body armor, and Ops Corps half-shell helmet with NODs firmly in place. Reese looked at his most seasoned troop chief. The light green glow of the NODs illuminated through the beard on the other man's face, 
a slight smile that could not be mistaken for anything other than the confident look of a professional special operations soldier. It's just over that rise, Reese replied. Predator shows nothing moving, no sentries, nothing. His troop chief nodded. All right, guys, he said to the other four men in the circle. Let's do it. They rose with resolve and moved with the poise of men who were comfortable in chaos, moving up the rocky ridge line to get their teams in place before approaching the target to make entry. This is too easy. You are thinking too much again. It's just another mission. And why this feeling? Maybe it's just the headaches. The headaches had plagued Reese for the past several months, finally prompting a visit to Balboa Naval Medical Center before this deployment for a series of tests. Still no word back from the docks. Maybe it's nothing. But maybe it's something. Reese had learned a long time ago that if something didn't look right, then it probably wasn't. That judgment had kept him and his men alive on many a deployment. Everything had lined up a little too easily for this target. The intel, the offset infill, the current state of the objective area. And why the pressure from higher authority to go after this target? When was the last time a flag-level command injected itself into a tactical planning process? Something wasn't adding up. Maybe everything's fine. Maybe it's the headaches. Maybe it's a bit of paranoia. Maybe I am getting too old for this. Focus, Reese. This wasn't the first time that they had approached a target they suspected was a possible ambush. At one point in the war, when intel had pointed to the high possibility of an ambush, corroborated by multiple sources, both human and technical, Reese would have knocked on the door with a thermobaric AT-4 or a few 105mm rounds from an AC-130 gunship. This was the first time that actual tactics had been dictated from higher, from men who would not be on the ground. Focus on the mission, Reese. One more check with the Tactical Operations Center, a forward-based command, also called the TOC, and a look at the Predator feed. Nothing. Another check with the sniper teams. Nothing moving. Reese glanced up at the military crest of the hill in front of him. Through his NODs, he could see the assault team set and ready to move. He couldn't see the snipers, which gave him cause for a thoughtful smile. Best in the business. Reese keyed his radio and opened his mouth to give the order to move. Then it all went black. The explosion knocked Reese back ten yards and ripped his helmet from his head as the entire military crest of the hill in front of him erupted in a concussion of violence and death. Teammates, friends, husbands, and fathers who one moment earlier had represented the best special operations force the world had ever known were gone in less than a second. Reese never realized that he was momentarily knocked unconscious. The pain in his head brought him back into the fight before the dust began to settle and the reverberations from the explosion had drifted from the hills. The professional in him immediately ensured he still had his weapon. Check. Next was a mental rundown of his body. Everything appeared to still be in the same place and working. They knew. How? Later, Reese. Always improve your fighting position. His eyes darted around looking in vain for his helmet and communications headset eyes adjusting to the dark, hands moving in a frantic search until finally coming across it in the dirt. Yes. Wait, too heavy to be my helmet. That's because it's not your helmet, it's someone else's, and the head is still in it. 
Even in the darkness, it was clear to Reese that he was staring into the face of his longtime friend and teammate, the big man with the huge beard and confident smile, and that his head was no longer attached to his body. Reese couldn't stop the tears from welling in his eyes, but quickly brushed them aside. Focus. No time to mourn. Exploit all technical and tactical advantages. Check. Reese unsnapped the chin strap, letting his friend's head fall to the ground and quickly put the helmet on his own head. Miraculously, the NODs still worked. His radio operator was face down, twenty yards away. Reese could tell from the contorted position of his body that he was dead. Moving quickly to his side, Reese turned him over, checked for breathing and a pulse, knowing that the shrapnel sticking through his right eye and out the side of his head had killed him instantly. Removing his radio man's helmet, Reese ripped off the embitter radio and headset to reestablish communications with the supporting aircraft and his talk. Nothing moved on the hillside. It was as if the sword of death had swept over the entire force. Reese heard footsteps behind him and spun, weapon up, off safe, infrared laser activated, searching for threats. He immediately checked up his M4 5.56mm rifle as he recognized three of his operators running up to him from their rear security positions. The temptation to run up the hillside was a strong one, but another thought was at the forefront of all their minds. Win the fight. His rear security found new positions without saying a word, forming a tight perimeter around their leader. Reese shut the carnage and death of the ambush from his mind. It was time to act. Spooky 47, this is Spartan 01, said Reese into his radio while looking at the griddled reference graphic attached to his arm. Request fire mission on building D3. 105S Levelant. Worn in a similar fashion as a quarterback's wrist coach, the GRG was instead an aerial image of the target area that allowed him to coordinate and maneuver forces who all used the same graphic. Good copy, zero one, six mics out. The AC-130 gunship had been loitering ten minutes away so as not to give away the coming assault in the still Afghan night. Break. Razor 2-4, Razor 2-4, request QRF and medevac on my position, Echo 3. Stay off the hillsides. We have multiple personnel wounded from buried IEDs. One never mentioned the dead in a radio transmission. Roger 01, headed in for a hot extract on grid Echo 3, 10 mics out. The QRF birds were two CH-47 helos packed with 15 rangers each. Mako, Reese said into the headset. Anything on that predfeed? Nothing, zero one, nothing moving on target. Copy. Reese turned his attention to his four remaining operators. Who do we have? He asked. Hey, sir, it's Boozer. I have Jonesy and Mike with me. What the fuck happened? Ambush. They knew we were coming. Bastards. We have an airstrike about five minutes out and QRF en route. Sir, we fucking told them this was an ambush. What the fuck? Sure as hell didn't expect this, though. Anyone alive? Not sure. Let's go find out. Roger, sir. But take it easy. There could be hundreds of IEDs or mines set up and buried up here. Jonesy, you and Mike stay here to bring in those birds. Boozer and I are going to go check for survivors. Boozer, stay about 15 yards behind me. Step only where I step. We will work our way up there slowly. Tox says nothing is moving on the other side of that hill, but stay alert. Got it, Reese. Let's go. The pair moved together up the hillside, though mountainside was a more apt term. Rocky and steep at altitude and weighed down by 40 pounds of body armor and gear makes for slow going, especially when moving through a suspected minefield. 
Spooky, we are moving up from GRG Echo 3 to Echo 8. Anything on the north side of the hill is fair game. Roger, zero one, still nothing moving. Strange. Good copy. Reese and Boozer inched up the hill, the smell of cordite, blood, dust, and death heavy in the air. Movement to the left. B, I have movement. Don't rush up. Continue to follow me. Reese whispered into his radio. Boozer responded by keying his mic twice, signifying good copy. Reese moved in the direction of the movement and what he now identified as moaning. Donnie Mitchell, one of the youngest members of Reese's team, lay dying among the rocks of eastern Afghanistan. His body missing from the waist down. He reached for Reese. Did we get them, sir? Donnie said weakly. I've still got my rifle. Yeah, you do, buddy. Yeah, you do. Airstrike is coming in now. We'll get them. Reese sat down next to Donnie and moved to cradle his head in his arms. As the first of the 105s began to hit the compound, Reese caught the hint of a smile on Donnie's lips as he drifted off to Valhalla. Reese looked up, watching Boozer slowly work his way among the boulder strewn hillside. Behind Boozer, Reese first heard, then saw the blacked out 47s begin their descent into the valley, where Jonesy and Mike now guided them in. We will pound the hell out of that compound with air and then move in with the rangers to conduct battle damage assessment and sensitive side exploitation. It was then that the gravity of what had just happened began to sink in. I've lost my team. It is my responsibility. Reese's eyes began to mist over for the second time that night. He had no idea how bad things were about to get. Chapter 2 Bagram Air Base, Bagram, Afghanistan Reese awoke on his back, his vision blurry, blinking to clear his eyes and soften the pounding in his head. Where am I? As he turned his head slowly to try to clear the cobwebs, his eyes came to focus on the tube sticking out of his arm, and he became aware of something strapped over his mouth and nose. IV. Oxygen mask. Hospital. Reese attempted to lift himself to his elbows, but was stopped short by a blinding pain in his head. Reese, Reese, easy, buddy, easy. Reese recognized the voice immediately. Boozer. Doc, he's getting up, Boozer yelled down the hall. This place was a far cry from the field hospital tents of the early days. If you didn't know you were still in Afghanistan, you'd think you were stateside at a naval medical center in Bethesda or Balboa. The only giveaway that it was in the middle of a war zone was the ubiquitous hum of the diesel generators providing 24-7 climate control year after year. Fighting in a country for north of 15 years can do that. Reese pulled down his oxygen mask and looked toward his friend. Boozer was still in his op camis, dirty, smelly, with dried white salt deposits straining through the Afghan grime from all the sweat of the night's mission. But other than that, looking none the worse for wear. Boozer was just one of those guys who never got a scratch. His body armor and weapon were absent, but Reese knew he would have a pistol concealed somewhere on his person. What happened? How did I get here? Boozer took a breath, trying not to let a look of utter sadness with an edge of pity cross his face, but failing miserably. Reese, 
NCIS is already here. They asked me not to tell you shit. Fuck them, though. Of course I'm going to tell you. NCIS? It's bad, Reese. Boozer continued. What's the last thing you remember? Reese's eyes tightened as he searched his memory banks. We were on the crest of the hill, airstrikes inbound. QRF and Kazivak coming in. He trailed off. Holding Donnie. Yeah, Boozer confirmed. That's right. Then the whole valley exploded. They baited us in, Reese. More elaborate than anything we've seen to date. They knew exactly what we would do after the hillside went up. They knew we would level that compound and bring in the cavalry for our wounded and dead. The entire floor of that valley, our exact position in the set point, was wired to blow. They knew when those helos were landing, and they cooked it off. Dash 1 dropped its rangers, took off, and when Dash 2 came in, they set it off. That second helo and all the rangers, sir, they got them all. Reese's eyes stayed focused on Boozer. Jonesy and Mike? Reese asked, already knowing the answer. Boozer shook his head. Sorry, Reese. I wanted to make sure you knew before those NCIS guys got in here. I got a bad feeling from those clowns. What's weird is that their questions weren't about the mission. They were about you. A confused look crossed Reese's face, which he quickly put aside. Me? I think they are looking for somebody to hang. It's my take, Reese. Stay strong, sir. You didn't do anything wrong. Hire forced us on that mission. They dictated the tactics. Those are the fuckers that should be investigated. They dictated tactics from the safety of HQ. Fuck those guys. Boozer always had a way with words. Not one to ever sugarcoat anything, he always gave his honest assessment. As a leader, that was what Reese expected. It is what he owed his troops and his chain of command. Always give your honest assessment. That was how one built trust as a combat leader. Without trust, there was nothing. Your men trusted you, Reese. And now they are dead. Focus. Something is not right. Something is just not right. Chapter 3 Lieutenant Commander Reese interrupted a voice from the hallway with more of a statement than a question. Boozer looked at Reese with an expression that told his commander, This is the asshole I was talking about. That's me, replied Reese, pushing himself up in his hospital bed. Hi, I'm Special Agent Robert Bridger with NCIS, he said, entering the room and nodding at Boozer while at the same time displaying his credentials to Reese. These guys love to show their creds, thought Reese to himself. He wondered if they knew the rest of the military thought they were all just guys who couldn't get into the FBI or CIA but didn't have the balls to be street cops, instead choosing to hide out in NCIS for a career of busting 18-year-old kids who popped positive on the monthly Navy drug tests. Even their name was deceptive. Despite leading with an N for naval, NCIS was not even a part of the Navy. Rather, it was a federal law enforcement agency staffed with civilian special agents focused on investigating naval personnel. No one liked them much. Boozer stood and, though talking to Reese, stared directly into Agent Bridger's eyes and said, See you later, sir. I'll be close if you need me. 
before departing the room, leaving it to the federal cop and his boss. Reese swung his legs over the side of the bed, slowly getting his balance. Looking at his arm, he yanked out the IV and then rose to his feet before extending his hand to the shorter man. Agent Bridger seemed nice enough, and for all Reese knew, he was just doing his job. Bridger smiled and took the outstretched hand. Good cop, Reese thought. Bridger was dressed in the uniform of those not in actual uniform in a war zone. Pressed tan pants with the requisite olive green button-up safari-style shirt complete with epaulets, along with clean beige combat boots. Reese always wondered what the epaulets were for. His 46-hour P-229 was displayed prominently on his belt in a scuffed-up black leather holster, probably the result of getting in and out of his desk chair for coffee multiple times a day. If you feel up for it, Commander, we have a few questions about the mission. I'm sure you understand. We just want to get this wrapped up as soon as possible and get you back to your men. Or what's left of them, thought Reese. Little quick, isn't it? asked Reese, looking around the hospital room. Well, it's a big deal, sir. We need to get some questions answered for D.C. as soon as possible. Reese nodded, resigned to take the blame he knew was his. He had always believed that as a leader you shared in the successes, but owned the failure. And when successful, you always pushed the credit down to the guys. They deserved it most. This was an unmitigated failure. His failure. Mind if I change? Reese asked. No problem, Commander. I'll be outside. Reese took a deep breath and surveyed his room. It wasn't what one would expect to find in Afghanistan. Modern and sterile, it stood in stark contrast to the world beyond its doors. Alone with his thoughts, Reese took another breath and located his clothes, opcamis covered in sweat and blood. He picked up his camo cry-pro top and rubbed the blood-soaked material between his fingers, wondering which of his men the blood belonged to. Reese knew that if anything were really wrong with him, they would have put him in the ER, which was in a different wing of the hospital, behind another set of doors and always ready for the inevitable next mass casualty event, which had become an all-too-frequent occurrence in the counterinsurgency fight. His weapons and body armor were gone. Boozer would have taken care of them. Ready, Reese said, exiting the room. Okay, the NCIS man answered. This time he was not alone. Instead, he was flanked by a large but portly uniformed Navy chief master-at-arms carrying a Beretta 92F pistol in a clean nylon holster. How the Italian gunmaker's awkward 9mm handgun had replaced the Colt 1911 A145 to become the official sidearm of the U.S. Armed Forces, Reese could only guess. Great. More fake cops, he thought. Reese fell into step with Agent Bridger as they made their way down the hallway toward the exit. The duo could not have been more different. Bridger stood about five inches shorter than Reese's six feet. His clean cargo pants and offset shirt were not stained by sweat, dirt, dust, grime, and blood like Reese's. His clean-shaven, pale face was a stark contrast to the taller man's stubble poking through the tough, tanned skin of someone who had spent most of his life beyond the confines of an office. Reese and his entourage pushed through the two sets of double doors, separating the medical world from the Afghan dust, which, 
No matter how much gravel the U.S. military continued to lay down, got into everything. Emerging into the blazing sun, Reese squinted his eyes and shielded them with his hand, realizing he hadn't had time to glance at his watch and, for some reason, thought it was still night. Reese almost stumbled, as a headache worse than any to date almost crippled him. Almost before he could react, it was gone again. What were these things? As Reese's eyes adjusted to the light, Bridger motioned to a parked side-by-side quad, a military-looking version of a golf cart. Bridger climbed into the driver's seat while Reese took the front passenger's side. Their silent master-at-arms security got in the back and they moved off toward what Reese assumed would be the base NCIS office. They blended in with the normal buzz of daily activity at Bagram Air Base. Soldiers moving to vehicles, getting ready for a mounted patrol with their Afghan partner force. Airmen switching shifts at the airfield. A line of military and civilian contractors forming at the Chow Hall. Just another Wednesday afternoon in a war zone. As they cruised down Disney Drive, Reese couldn't help but shake his head at the officers who had to return salutes about every five paces as they passed junior soldiers. Even in a combat zone, some brass felt it was important to maintain this piece of military decorum. It made him appreciate the sterile uniform he wore. No rank, which meant he didn't need to return fifty salutes on his way to the PX or gym. Bridger slowed the vehicle and pulled up in front of a structure left over from the time the Russians invaded Afghanistan in 1979. The outside was chipped with bullet holes whether from the Russian occupation or the current conflict. It was impossible to tell. Funny. To Reese, it looked like the old Russian brig. Fitting. Bridger left the Navy chief outside and led the way into the building and down a hallway lined with offices, each with a similarly dressed agent typing away, sifting through papers or mumbling on the phone. Reese took it all in, noting which way the doors opened, which offices had windows, which agents were armed, until Bridger stopped at the last door at the end of the hallway. Please wait here, sir, he said before slipping inside. Reese was left alone, assuming he was probably being watched by a small video camera surveying the hall. He looked at the bolo, or be on the lookout, printouts on the wall. Most were former Afghan workers who did the jobs too lowly for Americans namely emptying the porta-potties that baked day after day in the heat of the Afghan summer. Reese had always thought they were some of the best sources of intel for the insurgency, having paced out every corner of the base multiple times to ensure correct schematics for incoming mortars and rockets. The door opened again, and Agent Bridger nodded at Reese to come inside. It wasn't a big room, though Reese noticed immediately that there were no windows and no other points of entry. Seated at a rectangular folding table was a man who didn't offer his hand, but introduced himself as Special Agent Dan Stubbs while holding out his badge and ID card. Bad cop. Reese took a seat across from Agent Stubbs while Bridger joined the man who was quite obviously his superior. Stubbs made a show of organizing some papers before sliding his thin reading glasses down the bridge of his nose to address the seal he had summoned in an obvious power play. It was much darker in this room than in the hall or adjoining offices. Reese's eyes adjusted once again while casually continuing to scan the room. 
A large stack of papers sat in front of Agent Stubbs, and a micro-cassette recorder lay next to that. A video camera was set up in one corner on a tripod, but appeared to not be recording. Agent Stubbs was one of those guys who could be 40 or 60. His hair was buzzed, so it was hard to tell its exact color. His double chin was pronounced enough to notice, and though he did not stand, it was obvious he had a belly not accustomed to daily PT. He wore a black polo shirt under a cheap-looking dark suit coat. Something about his demeanor suggested past military experience, though Reese was skeptical as to the type. Commander Reese, he began in an official-sounding voice while pushing a piece of paper across the table. Before we begin, please acknowledge your rights and sign below. Reese knew better than to ever sign anything for a federal agent without an attorney present. He also knew that his men were dead and that it was his responsibility. He signed the paper and pushed it back across. We are not video recording this interview, Commander. First lie, thought Reese, as he nodded in acknowledgement. Reese knew that the inoperable video camera in the corner was a prop, as was the micro-cassette recorder on the table. The entire interview was being audio and video recorded by a microphone and camera hidden somewhere in the room. The prop camera was to put the subject psychologically at ease, while the micro-cassette recorder would be used at certain times to go off the record, a provision that, of course, did not exist. I am going to start this recorder for my notes, if you don't mind, continued the fat man. Reese nodded again, more to acknowledge the theatrics of the scenario than to specifically give his consent for the record. Stubbs made a show of starting the recorder and placing it back on the table. This is Special Agent Daniel Stubbs of the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Time, looking at his off-brand analog watch, 12.56 p.m., Wednesday, June 14th, 2017. I am here with Special Agent Robert Bridger to interview Lieutenant Commander James Reese, Troop Commander, SEAL Team 7, concerning mission number 644, Odin's Sword. Commander Reese, take us through the events surrounding Odin's sword. Reese started from the receipt of mission and went through the planning process. It had been a TST, or time-sensitive target, meaning it was a fleeting opportunity that needed to be acted upon immediately. The intelligence had come from a single source which would normally disqualify it from consideration until it was more fully developed. Reese always validated intelligence across disassociated sources, two humint sources coupled with SIGINT, traditional and technical methods overlapping to ensure the target was viable and not an entity using America to settle a personal or political grudge. When Reese had pushed back to his next echelon command, he had been told in no uncertain terms that this was national-level intelligence which was code for he was not authorized to know where it came from. Reese was cleared for top-secret, sensitive, compartmented information, which meant he could be read into special access programs on a need-to-know basis. Taking your men into battle was definitely need-to-know in Reese's book. Reese's troop had been operating out of an outstation in Coast, bordering Pakistan's federally administrated tribal areas near the town of Miram Shah a hotbed of insurgent activity as well as a safe haven for terrorists and their enablers. 
Ever since the high-profile killing of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, cross-border operations were a rarity, and the enemy knew it. Setting up in Khost, developing an indigenous intelligence network, working with host nation partner forces, and kinetically hitting the rat lines that moved people, weapons, and drugs between Afghanistan and Pakistan were the order of the day on this deployment. That is why the alarm bell started ringing when the TST came down the pike. No one knew that area as well as Reese and his team. They had been working it for the past five months. None of their human networks or technical intelligence pointed to a Taliban compound in their area of operations. The Taliban were too smart for that. Their senior people could live and direct operations with impunity from the Pakistan side of the border. Something was off. Reese didn't mention his call to Lieutenant Colonel Duke Bray, the Army Special Forces commander of the Special Operations Task Force, of which Reese's unit was a part. Duke Bray was a Special Forces legend and the best soldier one could ever hope to meet. He had been one of the first into Afghanistan after September 11, 2001, part of 5th Group's famed Triple Nickel, riding horses in support of the Northern Alliance offensive that retook Kabul in days rather than the months predicted by the talking heads at home. He had crossed paths with Reese many times over the years, and both men had the utmost respect for one another. Over their private, secure video teleconference, Reese could be as blunt as he wanted with the man he considered both a friend and a mentor. What the fuck, sir? Reese had asked when he knew both were behind closed doors and in front of their computers. I know, Reese. This is shit. I've never seen this, well, not in a long time. I told C.J. Sadaf to fuck off and that we were not doing it. What's crazy is that it wasn't their intel people pushing it. It's national-level intel, and you know what that means. Reese knew that meant CIA, and it meant strategic-level intelligence, not the tactical kind they developed on the ground. This had to be important to come down so quickly from that high up. Reese, I called in a couple favors at Langley to see if I could get some color on this. Nobody's heard of it. How does the target package look to you? It looks great. That's why I'm questioning it. I've never seen anything this thorough from that high up. And we've never even heard of this targeted individual, but there is sure a lot of intel to back up that he's a serious player with connections to Pakistani ISI, Reese said, referring to Pakistan's intelligence service. What did Stevens have to say? Reese asked, referring to the colonel commanding the C.J. Sadaf one level above Bray. You know Stevens. He's a good enough officer, wants to do the right thing, but he's a career guy. He said he had the personal guarantee from Tampa that this was a high-priority mission that has to go tonight. Tampa was the headquarters of both Central Command, in charge of U.S. military operations in the Middle East, and the Special Operations Command, which has the lead on all special operations worldwide. Wonder who guaranteed them, Reese wondered aloud. I don't like it, Reese, Bray continued shaking his head. Wish I was down there with you, Commander, but I'll make sure you have all assets of the task force at your disposal tonight. Your op will be the only game in town. Thanks, sir. A dedicated AC-130 and a Pred with Hellfires would be nice. My staff already has them dedicated to your mission. Good copy, sir. We better get to work. Thanks for the support. Godspeed, Commander. 
To Reese's surprise, Agent Stubbs did not dig into any of the oddities of where the intelligence originated. It was almost as if that were not even an issue. Interesting. As hard as it was, Reese recounted the events once on the ground. The offset infiltration, the reports of nothing moving on target, the explosions, the death. When he was finished, Stubbs's first question was not even about the mission. Instead, he removed a paper from the stack in front of him and pushed it across the table to Reese. Is this from your email, Commander? he asked. Reese made no attempt to disguise the anger in his eyes as he looked back up at Agent Stubbs and then over to a nervous-looking Agent Bridger. Maybe a better question is, what the fuck are you doing reading my personal emails? I will ask it again, Commander. Is this from your email? One of the first rules in an interrogation is to always know the answer to the questions before you even ask, and this was most definitely not an interview. It was an interrogation. This is private email correspondence between me and my wife. Not only with your wife, Commander but with members of academic institutions about ongoing military operations in Afghanistan. Reese almost couldn't control his eye roll. You mean Dr. Anna Scott at Naval Postgraduate School and Dr. David Elliott at Johns Hopkins? Subject matter experts in insurgencies and international relations? What did you mean by this highlighted sentence here? Stubbs asked, ignoring Reese's questions and pointing to a section of the printed email now in front of Reese. It says, I question whether the tactical goals even support our national strategic vision. It means exactly what it says. And how about this one here? Agent Stubbs asked again. Well, let me read it for you. You wrote to Anna Scott on April 9th, and I quote, I couldn't launch a mission today to apprehend a jaywalker with the same amount and quality of intelligence with which we invaded Iraq. End quote. Well, Stibbs, Reese began, intentionally mispronouncing his interrogator's name. Anna Scott is a dear friend and one of the world's leading authorities on insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. She spent much of her life in the field immersed in the complexities of revolution, unlike those actually dictating policy. Stubbs's hand reached for the microcassette recorder and pressed the stop button. Reese knew immediately what was coming. Commander Reese, off the record, what is your relationship with Dr. Scott? Unbelievable. Strictly professional, Stibbs. You should know that from reading all my personal emails. I see. Pressing record on the recorder again. And how do you explain actively promoting assassinations as an active-duty naval officer? What are you talking about? Reese asked incredulously. Back in 2014, you emailed Dr. David Elliott and suggested targeted assassinations as a viable government policy in your capacity as an officer, which is a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Reese looked back and forth between the two NCIS agents across from him. It would almost have been comical had it not been so serious. Reese had had many discussions with subject matter experts in the field of warfare. He felt it was his duty as an officer to constantly study his profession, resist groupthink, question assumptions, and seek out the most knowledgeable people he could across the industry to ensure he was going into combat as prepared and well-equipped as possible. 
That was what he owed the men under his command. It is what he owed their families, the mission, and the country. I'm done talking with you two idiots. Am I free to go? Don't make plans to go home just yet, Stubbs said, leaning back in his chair and exposing his well-nourished midsection. It is going to take us a while to sort through this mess. You are officially under investigation for subversive activities, disclosure of sensitive information, and violation of Article 13 conduct on becoming an officer. Stubbs voiced all this without much emotion, as if running on autopilot. Reese stood slowly. Bridger looked like he wanted to be anywhere except for right where he was. Stubbs put the emails back into the stack. As he stood, Reese's hand instinctively went to the back right section of his hip, where he always carried his issued SIG P226 9mm pistol. He couldn't help but think that had it been about 150 years earlier, the government would be looking for two new federal agents. Chapter 4 Dr. Peter O'Halloran exuded the confidence of a man at the top of his profession. In the weeks following September 11, 2001, Dr. O'Halloran turned the reins of his highly successful spine surgery center over to his team of surgeons and joined the Army to do what he felt was his duty. As one of the best spine surgeons in the country, Peter had performed procedures on everyone from professional athletes at the height of their careers to aging politicians looking for a reprieve from constant nerve pain. He knew that men would be gravely wounded in this fight, and he wanted to put his ample skills to work to keep those men alive. A waiver was quickly granted to bypass the age restrictions, and, much to the dismay of his wife and children, Dr. Peter O'Halloran soon found himself Lieutenant Colonel O'Halloran of the U.S. Army Reserve, spending more time in uniform in Iraq and Afghanistan than in his spine clinic in La Jolla, California. It had only been two days since the ambush and subsequent interrogation, but physically, Reese was ready to leave the hospital. He had been asked to stop in and see Dr. O'Halloran before he left for good, and upon his discharge, the nurse in charge of the shift walked him to the surgeon's office. O'Halloran greeted Reese warmly and invited him to sit. The doctor swiveled his chair to face a desktop computer and selected a file before rotating the screen so that Reese would have a better view of it. He then pulled up an image on the screen that was clearly a brain scan. It immediately reminded Reese of the black-and-white forward-looking infrared FIR imagery they used on the battlefield, with its glowing white highlights showing three-dimensional relief on a black background. The doctor used his mouse to put a cursor over a white blob on the image. Two of your men came in here wounded. We fought as hard as we could to save them, but their injuries were just too severe. As part of our initial assessment, we did scans to determine the extent of their brain trauma, and besides a significant amount of shrapnel, we found this. This is the CT scan we took of Petty Officer Morales's brain. You see this? He pointed to a white blob on the screen. This is an abnormal mass that is not consistent with a traumatic injury. The pathologist who did the autopsy believes that the mass is an oligodendroglioma, a rare and malignant brain tumor. The lab will confirm or deny that suspicion, but he knows his stuff, and I agree with his assessment based on the imaging. 
He clicked the mouse and a second image was displayed on the screen. This is Lieutenant Pritchard's brain. As you can see here, he has a slightly smaller but similar tumor. The pathologist and I believe that it is the same type. A third image came up. This is your brain, James. Now, we have no way of knowing for sure, but the mass on your brain appears to be similar in size and shape to that of your men. If we were in the States, I would bring you in for a biopsy, but we can't do that here. Reese's mouth went dry, and he suddenly had an overwhelming desire to be with his wife and daughter. I don't want you to panic, James. This could be a variety of things, and a malignancy is just one of them. What? Reese stammered. How... how rare is that, Doc? It seems crazy to me that three guys our age would have brain tumors. Extremely rare, James. The incidence of this type of tumor is roughly 0.3 per 100,000. Only about 2% of all brain tumors are of this type. Let's assume that yours is something different, since we can't confirm it here. But for two men on the same team, both in their 20s, to have this same type of tumor, O'Halloran shook his head. The odds are astronomical. Have you and your men been exposed to any chemical or biological agents? Been in any nuclear facilities? Anything like that? No. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, when we first invaded Iraq, there were a bunch of chem bio scares, but Pritchard was probably in high school at the time. And as far as I know, they were just that, scares. A team was hit with a mustard gas agent of some sort, but nowhere near where I was operating. As far as these two guys being together, nothing out of the ordinary. Hmm. Well, keep thinking about it and let me know if you come up with anything. This is incredibly unusual. Like I said, we can't do any more here, but when you get back stateside, you need to get checked out, just to be sure. I'm almost done with this deployment. It's been a long year, but I'll be back at my California clinic early next month. I want you to come up to La Jolla and see me. There are some colleagues of mine who specialize in brain research that I'd like for you to meet. You haven't had any blurred vision, headaches, anything like that, have you? No, sir, Reese lied, needing time to think. How about Petty Officer Morales or Lieutenant Pritchard? Did they or any of your men mention any unusual headaches? No, but that wouldn't be out of the ordinary with this crew. The teams aren't really a culture where people complain about those sorts of things. They think it might take them out of the fight. I see, the doctor said thoughtfully. I'm sorry about your men. I know that probably doesn't mean much, but I really am. Get yourself home safely. Hug your family. Bury your men. And make an appointment with my office for when I get back. Take care, James. Reese walked out of the medical facility, a man adrift. Truly, he was already gone occupied with the thoughts of the families of sons, husbands, and fathers whose bodies, or what was left of them, were being put into bags, then into flag-draped coffins for their final trip home. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Navy Federal Credit Union. I have been a member since 1996. There is my cue card right there. 
Man, Navy Federal has been with me every step of the way uh, while I was in the military for those 20 years. And now that I am out and they've taken care of me, taken care of my family um, and have had nothing but the best experience with them. So to have them sponsor this podcast is, uh, well, it's humbling and I am, I am honored. Uh, becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union lets you experience more from everyday commutes to your next big vacation. The flagship credit card earns you three times the points on travel so you can get rewarded for wherever you're headed next. Plus this premium travel card has a low annual fee of $49 and two times the points on all purchases outside of travel, meaning the rewards don't have to end even when the vacation does. Speaking of rewards, you can get a Navy Federal Auto Loan and reward yourself with a new car. Applying is easy. You can do it on their mobile app, online, or by phone, and it's so fast, you can get a decision in seconds. Navy Federal has great rates on auto loans, plus with their car buying service powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used car. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. It is open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Flagship rates are variable and range between 10.74% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Zero Foxtrot. Zero Foxtrot provides unique products that reflect the old school vintage military lifestyle. I've actually been following these guys for a while. Love what they're doing. Have a bunch of other shirts and coffee mugs downstairs from uh, uh, from the last few years. Just love it when guys get out and absolutely crush it. Zero Foxtrot is veteran founded and is a proud supporter of our nation's defenders, veterans, and first responders. Actually wearing this shirt. Look at that. Canoe Club USA. What does that mean? I think you're going to have to look it up in your web browser, the Google machine. Canoe Club USA. Awesome shirts out there. They have limited edition ones that drop every now and again that are super cool. So definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. And right now, we have an exclusive code for listeners of Danger Close. Use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Very cool. Remember, you can gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Just go to zerofoxtrot.com slash JC and remember to use code JC for 20% off at checkout, or just click the link in the description. Once again, that offer code is JC. Gear up with zero Foxtrot and use code JC for 20% off. Awesome. Definitely do that and check out all 
they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. They have some great things out there. They do some history posts every now and again that are really cool and very well thought out. Definitely check out zerofoxtrot.com for all the stuff. They have Zippo lighters in there. They have these mugs right here. What does that say? Drink coffee, stack bodies, stay zero. Love this. And then this one right here, this is cool. This might be a limited edition one. I'm not sure. Um, but for St. Patrick's Day, lack fear, not beer. Look at that. Boom. Love it. Awesome. So that's what they look like right there. Zero Foxtrot. Let me get a little of that action right there. That's a sticker. But uh, check out their t-shirts, mugs right here. Whiskey glasses. These are some of my favorites right there. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Solid. So check them out for sure, zerofoxtrot.com slash JC for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, the Terminal List Amazon Prime video series has dropped. All eight episodes are out and keep a close look out for some of that gear. Some of it will be obvious like this right here. This is the SIG P226 right here. Uh, and of course, if you've read the novel, you know what an important part this plays in it. And uh, if you were a SEAL going down range after 9-11, uh, you had this thing strapped to your belt. So uh, SIG P226, keep an eye out for that. Uh, once again, you won't miss it. It's in the opening credits. Uh, check those out. Things like Gator sunglasses are in there. Resco watch right here. Uh, maybe. And Aries watch. Keep a close lookout for somebody in episode three who looks a lot like me. Check out what that guy's wearing. And what is this here? The Razorback. Yep. So this one might be a little harder to spot, but keep a close eye and also look for that Dynamis sticker in the uh, opening credits and behind James Reese in his office garage, garage office. So look at that right there. Nice. You might even uh, notice some Dynamis jeans that Chris Pratt as James Reese is wearing. And of course, you will not miss this right here. The Winkler Tomahawk. Look at that thing. Bam. Uh, so that is in all the novels, of course, in the opening credits to the Terminal List. And uh, will Chris use this in the Terminal List as James Reese? I think you know the answer if you're listening to this podcast. So there it is right there. Of course, Black Rifle Coffee is in there as well. Uh, and there just might be a Josh Hall surfboard in there. Might be some Sorenex weights, uh, maybe even some knock-on archery. But keep an eye out for those little things, those uh, stickers, maybe a Fort Knox safe, uh, a few other things in there and uh, uh, that have a connection either to, uh, to me personally uh, or a direct link to the stories. So enjoy once again, the Amazon Prime video adaptation of The Terminal List starring Chris Pratt, directed by Antoine Fuqua is out now. Check that out on Amazon Prime video and pick up The Terminal List right here in hardcover with Chris Pratt on it. That's a special collector's edition with a new forward that I wrote that talks about how the book came to be, how the series came to be. And there's a series of pictures from the set in there as well. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Don't forget to get your hardcover limited edition of the Terminal List with Chris Pratt on the cover. It includes that forward that you just listened to on this podcast, it has exclusive photos from the set in here as well. Go check out the Amazon Prime series. Eight parts are all available now. And be sure to subscribe to the Terminal List podcast, which is coming in hot next week. 
Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for everything. Take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or how? Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm -hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.